this morning. We're going to be there continuing on. But we also, uh, at the end of our uh, service, worship team's going to come back up. That's why these front rows are blocked off. You guys, most of you know this, that the second Sunday of every month, uh, we do a time of prayer, congregational prayer, where you can come forward and have the elders uh, pray for you, either pray for you specifically or pray with you for someone you know has uh, need of prayer, family member, a friend, um, a, a co-worker, a neighbor, uh, a mom, a dad, lots of different things to be praying for, lots of different people to be lifting up. And there's example after example where God tells us to <coughs> pray together and that he'll answer our prayers and meet our needs. And so I would just challenge you um, to take advantage of that opportunity through the last couple songs of worship to come forward as the guys have come forward and um, to pray with you. And if you have need of healing, too, uh, the Bible says that um, to anoint, um, to be anointed, ask to be anointed for healing specifically, and that's and have the elders pray for you. And so now's your opportunity to also do that. If you're struggling with an illness, with a sickness, um, uh, 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 an injury of your heart, an emotional kind of healing as well, um, they would love to be able to uh, anoint you with oil and pray for you in wha- as that as well. And, and, and as you know, there's nothing, there's nothing magical uh, about the oil. It's just an act of obedience. God doesn't work in that way where we have special oil that we can anoint you with and, and guarantee things. It's just about coming forward in faith, we being faithful to what God has called us to do and giving God that opportunity to work in our lives as we, as we come to him. And, and the other reason why I would encourage you to do it or probably your primary reason is because when we pray, um, uh, it changes things. Prayer changes things. And you want to know what the Bible teaches us is that prayer primarily changes us. And through prayer, uh, you're coming to God. God does a work in us. And um, it's a really cool thing. So chapter 17, here we go. When we began this chapter (coughs) last week, we made it all the way through verse 2. And uh, even though we only made it through the first two verses, we really were able to lay some important groundwork for when we were going, uh, where we are going, and uh, in regards to reading and studying Uh, through these next three chapters, chapter 17, chapters 18, and chapters 19 is a new section in the book of Revelation. And if you go to chapter 19, you really get to see the culmination of of where we're going because in chapter 19, then Jesus comes back and um, he does, he wages war uh, against the enemies that have risen up against this time. And so chapter 17 and 18 are building up to that and and, uh, the, the foundation for where we were going Last week had been laid, and I don't want to go too much into all of that again. So if you weren't here last week and, and you want to get caught up, please go to our website. It's lscalvary.org, and uh, check out last week's study. And there's other studies up there now from the book of Revelation that you can listen to. We got that part of the website working, worked out and working. So now with that being said, my intention this morning is to finish this chapter. And as we dive back into this chapter, I want to remind us of the focus, of the overall focus of this chapter, is is for point of context. And um, as we we look at this, I want you to be reminded of the fact that God is bringing an end. The book of Revelation, as I have been speaking out, is a book of ends. It tells us how all things are going to end. 
And um, by the way, I, I know where we're going after we get done with this book. I usually don't know this far ahead, but we're going to go from the book of, of that, just that talks about the end of all things, and we're going to go back to the book that talks about the beginning of all things. So we're going to, when we get done with our study through the book of Revelation, we're going to, on the Sunday mornings, we're going to go back into the book of Genesis and, and look at how the, the, it gives us the account of the beginning of all things. So as you keep that kind of context in your mind, understanding that it's the description of the end of all things, this chapter, as we've been seeing different things being accounted as far as things that will come to an end, how God's going to deal with them, we see specifically in this chapter the end to the false religious systems. The false religious systems of the world along with the harlotries and spiritual adulteries that are committed against God during the tribulation through that one world religion that we know will be set up. And like we talked about last week, these kinds of harlotries, these kinds of spiritual adulteries are evident in all kinds of religious systems of the world today. And remember last week I even pointed out that it's quickly creeping into the church as the church is forsaking the preaching of the word of God, that safety net for us that keeps us in truth and, and um, in the right place that God has us. Now, in light of seeing the end of all things coming, specifically with the end of the religious system, we see in this chapter uh, similar uh, uh, symbolism, actually the exact same symbolism being used here in chapter 17 that was first used back in chapter 13. And when we were in chapter 13, we spent much time going back to the Old Testament, some of the passages in Ezekiel and also in the book of Daniel, a little bit into the book of Isaiah, and we went to there to see the symbolism in order to get an accurate and contextual discernment of what these symbolic things are referring to. And the reason why I keep pointing that out is because I hear over and over and over and over again when it comes to the studies other people have, have, have heard and other people may be teaching in regards to the book of Revelation, it's like they say, there's so much symbolic thing, there's so much figurative things going on there. How is one to know what it really is? And rather than doing the research and going back to the Old Testament where it outlines and details exactly what this symbolism and this figurative uh, 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 wordage or figurative uh, speech uh, writing is referring to, they come up with their own opinions and they go, well, this is what it means. Well, and then you go to another pastor, another teacher, and he goes, no, no, this is what it means. And if I ever do that, throw me right out. Because I don't want to give you my opinion. And if I do give you my opinion on these things, when God makes it really clear what it is, I'm going to have to stand before him on judgment day, the Bible says, and give an account. And that scares me to death. And so as we come to this, I want to point out over and over again, this isn't my opinion. These are things that the word of God clearly tells us what this is symbolic of, what this figurative writing is representative of, because you go to the whole counsel of the word of God and it's given to us over and over and over again. And so without going back over all those specific deals, uh, w details in regards to where how we come up with that symbolism, you can again go and, and, and listen to the study online to Revelation chapter 13 if you want to. But I want to point out that as we dive back into this, that the reference to the dragon Keep in mind, when we're reading about the dragon here, it's symbolic of Satan, okay? The reference to the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns, which we're going to kind of pick back up on this morning, is symbolic of the Antichrist. And the reference to the second beast is symbolic 
or represent the false prophet who will be raised up at the end times and, and during the years of seven years of tribulation, and he will oversee this, the, 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 he'll be like the high priest or the head priest, if you will, of that one world religion that will be instituted at the three and a half year mark of the tribulation. And in our study through the first two verses of this chapter, we were introduced to a woman. Do you remember? She's called the harlot. And, and last week I pointed out how she is symbolic of this worldwide apostate religion that the Antichrist will set up. And by it, we know that he'll lead many people to rebel against God, many people to give their worship to him as the Antichrist, but also uh, more so to Satan and his beast. Now, before we move on, I want to reiterate the fact that the book of Revelation, that in the book of Revelation, the woman is symbolically portrayed in three different ways. Take the book of Revelation as a whole, three different times. She's mentioned and she's portrayed symbolically each time in three different ways. The first is back in chapter 12, verse 1. And she's represented as Israel. God's chosen people. Then here in chapter 17, the woman is clearly called the harlot, and it represents this false one-world religious system. And, and, and the people who are a part of this system are those who are against God. Okay, And then in chapters 19 and chapters 21, the third woman is symbolically spoken of, and she represents the bride of the Lamb, the church which are those of us, you and I, those of us who have received God's grace and forgiveness through our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, even though I briefly went over this at the end of last week's study, I was kind of rushed to the end of it, I want to I bring it up again this morning to remind us as we go through the rest of this chapter, because it's important for us to understand that God sees. Now, we need to keep this in light in our mind as we go through the rest of this chapter. Keep in mind that God sees, God sees all people in one of these three categories as depicted by the woman symbolically throughout the book of Revelation. And the fact of the matter is, is you are either an unbelieving Jew one of God's chosen people whom God is still going to deal with. There's still a time and a place, the seven-year period of time, the tribulation, where God's going to deal with all unbelieving Jews. There's a lot of believing Jews who are now a part of the church. But the first part, the first way that God sees people is either as an unbelieving Jew whom he is still yet to deal with. Or, if you're not in that category, you're a part of the church. Jew and Gentile alike, right? Jew and Gentile alike, the pure bride of Christ who is waiting to be wed to God's only begotten son. And um, the last category, if you're not one of those two things, you're in this third category. You're an apostate, a traitor. God sees you as either one of these three things. And, and the last one is this being described here in chapter 17 as an apostate, as a traitor, someone who is against God, but more importantly, ultimately what it boils down to is you're against God's plan and God's will for your life. That's what it really boiled down to, to for me when I was not following after God, is I didn't want God's will or God's plans for my life. Why? Because I thought that my plans 
and my will was better. I didn't want to do what God wanted me to do. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And that's been, that's been the case with all sins since the very beginning with Adam and Eve, right? It's not really that they didn't want God. They just didn't want God's will, God's plan. They thought they were deceived by Satan in thinking that God or that, that there was something better. And so what did they do? They rebelled against God and they went and ate from the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God had forbidden them to. They were seeking a different plan, a different will for their own lives. And that's the third ga- category that God can see us in. And this is important to understand because God is showing us here in chapter 17 through 19 that he's going to crush. Okay, this is why it's important to keep in mind. Because in these three chapters, God is showing us that he's going to crush and he's going to bring an end to every traitor and to every treacherous way that stands against him. Fortunately for us, we're living now in a time that the Bible refers to as an age. Some people call it a dispensation, as the age of grace. A time where the Bible says that God is holding back his wrath and his judgment so that many might be saved. That people may repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, believing he's the Son of God who came to die on a cross for them so that they may be spared from the judgment and the crushing that's to come. And this morning, I would ask anyone here, if you've not given your life to Christ yet, if you've heard these messages before, I would ask you to consider what category you're in and see the end of all things and not remain in this place where you're going to find yourself one day before the judgment seat of God with no chance. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, for this time together. I pray, Lord, that you would now teach us in spirit and truth, that as we come to your word, that you would discern to us God's truth, that you would... Lord, reveal to us how these things apply to our lives so that we may, God, draw closer to you, but even more so, Lord, that we may be those witnesses that you've called us to be. God, we know time is coming to an end. We know that things are rapidly coming to pass that your word speaks about that is leading to your return, the return that we read about in Revelation chapter 19. And just like you came in fulfillment of prophecies, as a baby, as an infant, born to a virgin, and died on a cross for our sins the first time you came. Lord, we know that in fulfillment of prophecy, you're coming again a second time. Lord, where your foot will touch upon this earth, and God, that you will come as the mighty conqueror, the lion, to rule and reign. (coughs) Lord, help us to see that. Help us to know, God, that for those of us who are yours, that we have a different fate, we have a different destiny. God, that we're looking to the heavens, that we're listening for the sound of that trumpet so that we may be taken as your as your bride, Lord, those who are waiting for you to be wedded to you. God, we, we pray for that day to come when we would hear that trumpet and we would be caught up together. We pray that you would come quickly in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's look at verse 3, because that's kind of where we're at. And so John goes, after speaking about seeing the angel who was showing him some things, and he says, this angel, he carried me away in verse 3 in the spirit into the wilderness. And this is where John says that he saw this woman again. And I saw a woman, this harlot that he described earlier. He said she's sitting now on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. 
The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Then on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of, of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Verse 6, John says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. We'll stop there and we'll, we'll make it through the rest, but we're going to stop there for now. Now look back to verse 3, because in verse 3, as we continue on, we see now this, this harlot, this woman who, 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 who symbolically represents the one world religion that's going to be established at this time. We see her sitting on a beast. This beast, which is described as having seven heads and ten horns. And we'll talk more about this in a little bit, this, this seven heads and the ten horns. Um, and, and, um, but, what, but for now, we, what we know about this from our previous study in Revelation chapter 13, when we looked at the symbolic representation of these things, going back to some of the Old Testament references, is that this beast with its seven heads and its ten horns is symbolic of the Antichrist and of the one world government that will be under his authority. And as this harlot is seen riding this beast, notice that John in verse 4 goes on to give us a detailed description of what this harlot looks like. And this is the first thing I want to point out because he makes specific um, documentation about her appearance, saying how she was dressed in purple and in scarlet and she is adorned with with gold and precious stones and pearls. And, and when you get a little bit further description down about her and who she represents and what, she, and what she's all about, and, and ultimately in verse 6, what she's drunk with, there seems to be a contrast between the beauty that is being portrayed and what she truly is. And, and, and first of all, that should remind us of, the, of, of, we talked about it before, how Satan's ministers of darkness portray themselves as angels of light. They, they don't come to us with their pitchforks and their, their fiery red suits and their tails. You know, it's, that, it's not, demons don't come always in this grotesque kind of uh, way, nor does evil in itself present itself in something unattractive to us. But it's even more than that. It, there's more going on with this figurative description of, of the beauty that's being portrayed here. And because it's not just about an individual, it's about a whole religious system that we're talking about at this time. And so as we look at it in that light, I want to point out to you that when these things are seen in Scripture, the gold, the pearl, the precious stones uh, being adorned in this beautiful way, it typically represents a beauty and a glory that flows not from just an individual, but from a genuine faith in God. In other words, if you want to be depicted in this kind of a light, if you want to be seen by people as, 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 as beautiful and attractive, it comes, it flows from a genuine faith in, in God. I was, I was speaking to um, uh, Jenny Hagee the other night, and she's done some hospice work for one of the, the, the um, uh, hospice uh, agencies here in town. She works as a volunteer. And in her experience of things, she's been in the, the, the room when someone has been passing away, both when someone is an unbeliever 
and someone who is a believer. Not only that, she's gone to, um, with the buttons, to the um, uh, nursing homes. And um, in the nursing homes, lots of times there's people there who have had strokes or, or certain things where they can't verbalize, they can't speak. And she said there's one gentleman in there in particular who used to be a younger guy, like in his 50s. He used to be a worship leader at one of the churches in, in the community. And he can't verbally communicate. But she said even without, whether it's with someone dying and they can't articulate thing, or like this guy in the nursing home, she said even without them being able to speak and share their faith or their belief, she said you can see in them that there's something different, that there's this beauty that comes from within because of a genuine faith in God. You know, as we were talking, she said, I wonder if I am that way to others. Are we like that? Do we, because of the genuine faith inside, people look at us and see a, an attractiveness, a beauty that would never, that could be shown without any word ever being spoken? Because when it comes down to those things, if you you've tragically suffered some kind of illness and you're bound into a chair and you can't say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, can they just look at you and know that something's different? And see, when we talk about this in relationship to that beauty and that glory that flows from a genuine faith in God, in context of what we're looking at here, we see that these things as being described by John reveal to us of also how at least a false religion can steal. A false religion can prostitute through deception the truth. It can, it can prostitute the truth and it can steal the truth, meaning that it is possible for a religious person, at least on the outside, to look genuine, right? To have this genuine appearance on the outside, but inwardly be far away from a genuine faith in God. That's what's being shown to us here. Because even though this woman was beautiful on the outside, on the inside, this false world religion, even though it may have this attractiveness on the outside as it prostitutes what is truth, on the inside, it's wickedness, it's darkness, it's evil. If you remember, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus kind of spoke about this through a parable. Not only in a religious, organizational kind of way, but even individually as we look at this as application to our own lives. And in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus told a parable of the ten virgins. And he said to begin with in verse 1, he said that the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And in this parable, Jesus took the example of a traditional Jewish wedding, which was... Uh, 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 they had a cultural understanding of what that was like at that time. But he took a, an example of a, a, a traditional Jewish wedding where, where in as a couple would be engaged. And then about a year later, the groom would come at an unexpected time to gather his bride to be wed. We know that during that time, the groom was building a dwelling place for his future bride, much like Christ is, he says, in heaven building us rooms or mansions in his father's house and we know that he's going to come back for us there's this beautiful picture in that as well as with being the bride of christ but as jesus refers to that those jewish wedding cultural things as he speaks about this 
he's giving us insight and he's giving us understanding really through this parable of his return for the church. Specifically the rapture, which we talk about when it says he will come in a day, in an hour, an expected time to call us to him, to bring us to him when our mansions are done, when the last part of the church has been brought in, that last one. And in this parable, Jesus went on to say that when the bridegroom came, when he came at that unexpected time for his bride, five out of the ten virgins who were there waiting, he says they were foolish. And they were foolish because they did not have enough oil in their lamp to light them when the bridegroom came. In other words, they were unprepared. And in, 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 in their unpreparedness, they could not come out and meet the bridegroom when he came for the bride. As a result, the five wise virgins who had the oil in their lamps were taken by the groom, while the, while the, the five foolish virgins who were left behind. Now the point is, is that all ten of the virgins were the same in every way. Except for the fact that five who were left behind did not have oil in their lamps. And this is significant because we know that all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, any time when we, there's, a, there's a, a, a depiction of the Holy Spirit, it's, a, it's, it's, it's represented in some ways, or it's represent, he's represented often by oil. And, and so we can see that the five women who were missing oil for, them, for their lamps represent people who do not have the Holy Spirit of God inside of them. Specifically, a person who may outwardly look religious or even look to be like a Christian by doing good things, by doing religious things, like maybe going to church or helping others in need, but inwardly there's no true spiritual life. And they are not born again. They are not converted as they have never really put their faith in Jesus Christ and said, God, your plan, your will. That's what I want. And this is evident by the fact that they don't have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of them, which, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, we're told that the Holy Spirit of God is given to all true believers as a seal of ownership. And according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, the Holy Spirit is given to all believers as a guarantee of our salvation, a seal of ownership and a guarantee of our salvation that comes only by faith in Jesus Christ. Consequently, religion, okay, what is that anyway? I hate religion, just so you know. I grew up in a religion where it was all about religious things and not about a relationship that saves. But religion, and, and I'll just define it in this way for this morning, for the, for the sake of our study. Religion can be doing any kind of work to reconnect yourself or to find favor and acceptance with God rather than through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And man, religion is the worst when you look at it like that. It's the worst because it causes a person to believe that things are okay. When in reality, they are catapulting themselves to an eternity. Thinking, because I do this, I'm pleasing God. Because I do that, or because I've helped this person, or because I go to church and I read my Bible, and and all these things, people can be deceived into thinking that everything's all right, but 
they're catapulting themselves into the world. Why? Because they don't have that favor of God. They don't been reconnected to God because that connecting to God, that reconnecting to God and favor and acceptance of God only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Not through religion, but through relationship. And like Jesus said in the parable of ten virgins, listen, he said, he will not open the door to, to, the, to the, king, the door to the kingdom of God to any person who does not have a personal faith relationship with him. Remember, Jesus said those five came later on, and they came knocking on the door after the door had been shut to the wedding feast, and, 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 and he, said, he said, depart from me. Why? Because I never knew you. Do you know Jesus? Do you have a genuine faith? Or is there just this outward appearance and darkness and emptiness? Now in verse 5, if you look, it says that on the forehead of the harlot is written Babylon the Great, the mother of all harlots and the abominations of the earth. And this title is telling us how this end-time religious system, which is against God, it's telling us how it will be tied to a specific city, the city of Babylon. And when Babylon the Great is mentioned as the mother of all harlots and of all abominations, it's really a broader reference to Satan and his kingdom, which has been, and of course during the tribulation period will be, but has been even now actively against God and working in this world for thousands and thousands of years. In fact, the Bible is full of information telling us about Babylon being the source of all false religion. You want to know where it all began? It began with Babylon as the source of false religion, all pagan worship and all idolatry. And we see that this first began in an organized way in the book that tells us about the beginning of all things, specifically in reference to the building of the Tower of Babel. This is recorded in Genesis chapter 11. And in Genesis chapter 11, it tells us how the people of the earth, they had all decided they were going to come together and that they were coming together against God. Now, people think that they were just building this big old tower. But why? It tells us that they were building this tower to come against God. And, 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 and literally, it says in verse 11 that they were seeking to make a name for themselves. In other words, a name for themselves, a life for themselves, apart from God. They wanted a life apart from God and a life apart from God's will for their lives. Now, the name Babel, according to eleven, chapter 11 in the book of Genesis, verse 9, it, it, according to that verse, it, we see that it's tied to confusion. Not just because God confused their language, but because God did away with the plans of these people by confusing their language so that they could not speak to one another. But later, this name, the same name, Babel, this is how evil men are, that name later was applied to the city of Babylon, which itself has a long history, dating back to 3,000 years before Christ. This is just not a religious history lesson that I'll be giving you. There's a lot of secular history that you can go and read about that ties right into these things. And according to Genesis chapter 10, we know that the founding father of the city of Babylon was a man by the name of Nimrod. And, and, um, and did, did your dad or mom ever used to call you a Nimrod? 
Now you know why. But anyway, he is the founding father of, 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 of the Babylonian city. And in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 10, we are told this about him. It says, he began to be a mighty one on the earth. And then in verse 9, it says that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And in light of this, it's important to point out that Nimrod's name means firm or rebel. And if you've studied the biblical accounts of Nimrod, when you do so, you come to see that he was really the first dictator kind of ruler over all the earth. And we see that with the accounts of the Tower of Babel that Nimrod was in direct opposition to God and that he was really not a mighty hunter of animals before the Lord like, like one might think. But when you read and study it, you see that he was rather a hunter of men's souls. That's why it's in a reference before the Lord. He was against the Lord, before the Lord. He was a hunter of men's souls. And he sought to lead men away from the will of God, from the worship of God, and into rebellion and into idolatry. The Bible tells us that Nimrod was the king of the land of Shinar. And that, that the beginning of his kingdom, or of his capital city, was Babel. The same place where the people of the earth had sought to, quote-unquote, make a name for themselves. But we're also told that his reign extended into the land of Assyria. Now that's significant. Where he established, we're told, a second capital city. Does anybody know what that is? The city of Nineveh. And this is important to note because especially in light of where we're going, because Nimrod's kingdom, it, it encompassed everything that would become later two separate and two very powerful nations. Filled with people who were pagan people, brutal people, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. It all began with Nimrod. Both of which, which, both of which by the way, would rise up against the nation of Israel, God's nation, and a God, against God's people to take God's people captive. And historically, Babylon has been important politically, but also religiously, as history accounts and archaeological digs have demonstrated, that all the pagan gods, okay, all the pagan gods of the Romans, all the pagan gods of the Greeks, all the pagan gods of the Egyptians, and the Assyrians can all be traced back to the Babylonians. And this is why, right here in Scripture, Babylon is rightly called the mother of all harlots and of the, all the abominations on the earth. But in the end, what we're being told here, what we're being shown here, as it's being connected here, is, being, is we're being told is that in the end, Babylon and all that it represents will come to its final judgment. In other words, all rebellion against God will be down. So in verse 8 we read, and it says, But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast which carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is and yet uh, that was and is not and yet is. All right, so far we've looked at the harlots. 
okay? We looked at this harlot who rides the beast, and we determined that she symbolically represents the one world religion that centers on, in these end times, specifically the, Satan, the, the worship of Satan and the Antichrist. And as we are told that Babylon is the mother of all of these harlot trees, all these abominations of the earth, we see that the bigger picture encompasses really all the false religions that have been or ever have been and are still today. False religions that hunts after men in order to capture their hearts, in order to capture their minds, in order to capture their souls so that they do not give worship to the one true and living God. And as we continue on in these next verses, we're going to look at the beast which this woman rides, or the harlot that she is riding. And this beast, as I've already mentioned, is the symbolic representation of the Antichrist. And from our study back in Revelation chapter 13, we also looked at at that time in Daniel chapter 2, and it's evident from those two chapters that the beast can only be the Antichrist. It's not opinion, it's what the Bible points out to us. And the important thing to note is that at the end of verse 8, this is what I want to draw your attention to. If you look there, at the end of verse, or excuse me, at the end of verse 8, it tells us, or in verse 8, not, well, at the beginning and also at the end, we're told that the beast was and is not and will ascend up out of the bottomless pit. Now, this bottomless pit is something that's already been revealed or, or mentioned to us. We've seen this previously in the book of Revelation. And, and, and it's literally the dwelling place of Satan. Now, Satan has the ability to go to and fro throughout the earth at this time. He can even go before God and accuse us. But where he dwells is in this bottomless pit. And it's the same space or the same place spoken of back in Daniel chapter 9. When during, if you remember, the fifth trumpet judgment, smoke, we're told, will rise up out of the earth and darken the sun and the air from this bottomless pit. This is also the very exact same place that those creepy demon-like, those demons that look like locusts will come up from the earth in order to torment the men of the earth during the first part of the tribulation period. And so this reference to the bottomless pit reveals to us the power that is behind the beast, that it's a satanic power. But more specifically, as we're told in verse 8, that the beast was and is not, but will ascend from the bottomless pit, we see another indication of that supernatural resurrection that we've read about previously. If we remember, the Antichrist is going to suffer a mortal head wound, and it's going to be a turning point in his uh, rule over the earth because he'll be wounded, and then he'll be brought back to life by Satan. I don't know if he'll really be completely dead. That I don't know if Satan has the ability to give life. So there's some technical things there that's kind of unknown. But the bottom line is, is he's going to send up out of the bottomless pit in order to take a physical possession of the Antichrist. And this same, and this, and this, this, this satanic indwelling, and in this apparent resurrection, we're told that all the earth is going to marvel. Did you get that? That they're gonna that they're that 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 what they're going to do is is that they'll move this league of ten nations this this world power at this time that's represented by this league of ten nations and represented by the ten horns in the symbolism here is going to cause them to give their authority over to the antichrist their authority and their power and it's going to usher in a final kingdom the eighth kingdom 
the final world power that was prophesied about by Daniel in chapter 2. Furthermore, it as a result of these events, um, what we know um, is the world will abandon their uh, their differing false religions and together with one debased mind and one hardened heart, they will willfully worship Satan in the image of the beast. And so in verse 9, it says, here is the mind which has wisdom. Speaking about the, 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 the beast, the seven heads are seven mountains on which this woman sits. There are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth. And again, that's last kingdom, that last world power. And it is one of the seven, meaning it's going to come up out of the seven. And it is going to perdition. Also, we also know it's in to this place of worthlessness. And then verse 12, the ten horns which you saw are the ten kings which receive no kingdom as as yet, but they have received authority for one hour as the kings with the beast. In other words, that's not a literal space of time, but it's telling us just for a period of time, a very short period of time. Then verse 13, these are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, I love verse 14, and the lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords, king of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. And then he, the angel, said to me, John, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are the peoples and the multitudes, the nations and the tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill the purpose to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman which you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now, I kind of described the symbolism there um, and, and reference to the kingdoms and, and, and all that. I don't want to close with that. If the worship team wants to come up, we're going to get ready for our time of prayer. I want to close l- with this. And I want to point out so that when we come to this end of the tribulation, that we know that in the last days, there's going to be the, the moving to or the formation or the groundwork being set for this one world church, this one world religion. And um, the harlot's going to be involved in um, the political and economic affairs of the world at this time. And with the beast, in summation, as we look at all this, the beast will come and he'll be, he, he, they, with the beast, all of these things are going to come together. God's given them the mind to become one, and they'll be a great power. Now, this world church will be inclusive of all of the modern-day world apostate systems. And they'll come into the power on the back of the beast, who's empowered by Satan, and the ten nations that will come together more than likely it'll be a european confederacy because we know that it's going to be birthed from a what's called the revived roman empire all those other world powers the seven that have come all of them except for one have been brought down um the only one that didn't was the roman empire it fell apart from within it was never conquered And so they see this last nation, this last world power, if you will, that's going to be run by the the Antichrist, 
as a, as a revival of that Roman Empire. And all of these things are going to take place during the, the tribulation period. And, and then when the Antichrist is wounded and he receives that apparent satanic resurrection, he's going to come into power by that. And these kings, we're told, are going to give over their authority to him. And um, all of these things are also spoken of in Daniel chapter 9. You can go and look at them. But what I want to end with is, is I want to point out that this chain of events is outlined in this chapter and by other chapters of the book of Revelation that we have studied, so, uh, studied through so far. You see these chain of events taking place over and over again being detailed and accounted for us. But as we close, I want to draw your attention to verse 14 because this is where, where it all comes to. In verse 14, look, it says, These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Remember, as we close, God looks at all men and women who are upon the face of the earth, and he sees them as either one of his special chosen people, his bride, or he sees them as those who are against him. He sees those today as those who are waiting for his return, as an expectant bride waits for his groom, or he sees those who, he sees others in this category of those who are rejecting his will, his plans, and his purposes for their life. And as we close and we begin to worship and come into this time of prayer, I would again challenge you, what category are you in? Have you given your life to Christ? Have you put your faith in him? Or are you still living your life according to your own will and according to your own desires? And what this chapter is showing you is, is you may have a way of doing things, but that way of doing things, if it's apart from God's will, will ultimately be brought into judgment. God doesn't, God doesn't tolerate anything or anyone who is not found in the Son, Jesus Christ. Because the awesome thing is, is God says that that, that that relationship with his Son, that forgiveness, is a free gift because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. And all you have to do is say, I want that. I put my faith in you. I trust in you. I want your plan and your will for my life. And the Bible tells us that no matter what you've done, God will not turn you away. That if you come to him, he's waiting there with open arms to receive you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, for this time together. I thank you for this reminder that you're going to bring all things into account, that you're bringing everything that is against you into judgment. And, God, that greater reminder that we who are with you, who those, those who have, have chosen you, God, that you see us as faithful because of um, our relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. God, thank you that we are found together with you in your son. Lord, as we worship you now in song and in prayer, I pray, God, that um, you would hear our prayers in answering those prayers, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name.